angels are amazing especially at times like this when it's hard for founders and female founders because there's like this bias towards second time founders in a down market even most i think angels can play a very key role here in helping founders in the early stages before we come in hey everyone welcome back to the sas revolution show brought to you by sasstock the conference that helps sas companies get traction growth and scale i'm your host alex thuma and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. All right, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution Show. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, CEO, founder of SaaStock. Delighted today to be joined by Dipali Nangia from Speed Invest and Ed LaSalle's from Albion VC. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. You're in different locations. Are you both in London? I'm in London. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. At the office, Speed Invest office, always. At the office, always in the office. Is it like with VCs, are you going into the office all the time? Are you doing remote work? Are you doing work from home? I come in Monday through Thursday, on the, other than the days that I'm traveling. Yeah, three days, three days a week. And it is noticeable just here in Farringdon where we're based. The, the tube is still pretty empty on a Monday and a Friday. Let's, let's just get to know, learn a little bit about you, first of all, before we go deep into it. Let's, we always start off getting to know who you are as people. So, Dipali, why don't you start with this deep question? Who is Dipali? Really deep, as you say. I'm a partner at Speed Invest with the focus on female and diverse founders. I joined Speed Invest two and a half years ago. The first day I spent as a venture partner and joined full-time a year and a half ago as a partner. Speed Invest as a seed pan-European fund, investing across six sector verticals, deep tech, health, fintech, SaaS, consumer marketplaces, and fintech. And yeah. I've been here now one and a half years, have made some actually SaaS investments last year, three of them. I was involved with three female founders. Separately outside of that, I'm co-founder of Alma Angels, which is an angel community set up to create the next generation of female angel investor. And lastly, I'm a mother of two. Very cool. Outside of investing and obviously parenting two children, which is a full-time job in itself, any, what else do you do? Any known hobbies? Any time for that? I love to exercise. So whatever free time I have, I do go for a run a lot. I go to the gym a lot. Of course, I don't think I have that much free time beyond parenting and working. I think I work, I also have Alma as on the side. I'm still very much co-founder there. Yeah. I'm trying to take some holiday every now and then. Thanks, Dipati. And Ed, how about you? You're starting on the outside stuff, just as that's what we're talking about. I guess I'm quite excited about the fact the tech VC band that I'm in has just got its first gig in the diary after the pandemic. We got to a nice level of playing at various sort of tech events, tongue firmly in cheek. Play, played a couple of really fun gigs. And then the pandemic hit the music industry, live music industry, obviously one of those that got badly hit. And then our band, we all start the day job. But we just got our first gig in the diary in October. Details to, to follow. But anyway, we started getting practicing. It's been great to have back in the studio. Anyway, but that is obviously on the side. The focus, we, you know, I've been investing in ventures since 2004. I've begun life briefly, unimaginatively and safely by choosing a banking career while I tried to figure out what to do next. I was lucky enough to join just as the dot-com boom started going in full swing and then actually floated a company on the London Stock Exchange. It was the first sort of tech company under these fl new flexible listing regime that then was worth 1.1 billion pounds, I think, at the point we floated it. And then we sold 18 months later for 8 million pounds in the dot bust, 
which was like a real sort of initiation into the sort of corporate world. And then from that, just fell into venture, which is very different back then. It wasn't all tech and it's very different to the startup world now. But And then the first few investments were in tech, were in software, and I've basically been investing in software companies ever since. And then now Albion is, we've been around for over 25 years. We've invested in 200 companies. We've had exit on NASDAQ, Stock Exchange, Oracle, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft. And then we've had loads of companies that sadly haven't made it at all and, and loads in between. So have got our scars, but also loads of experiences as to what kind of the commonalities are of companies that end up succeeding. Yeah, so about 50 companies in the portfolio at the moment and just focused on early stage venture in the UK. Cool. Thanks for that, Ed. And you, you mentioned there about falling into venture and a bit of your journey there. Like asking you both and maybe Departy first, like why move into VC? What was it about VC? Yeah, so to be honest, I didn't have this linear path into VC. Like I came horizontally into Speed Invest. I had been angel investing and advising female founders for seven, eight years in the in the angel ecosystem. And also, of course, I built up Alma Angels. I had invested I think the first angel investment I made went public, which was Pension B. It was a fintech. I think it was, I was one of their first few angels and then invested in 30 or so angel uh, angel deals. Atomico gave me some capital for three years. So I'd invested as an Atomico scout and was having dinner with a friend one day who is now building a deep tech company, AI. And he was he used to be a deep mind. And he said to me, have you ever thought of a venture partner role at a fund, given all the work that you do in the ecosystem? And I had never even heard of what a venture partner was. I had known a lot of funds by then. One of them was Speed Invest. I literally emailed three people. And one of them was Speed Invest and said, if you ever hear of a European fund that's looking for a venture partner, I'd love to be considered or at least learn more about it. And I emailed two American funds because I thought, I'm sitting in London. Who can I add most value to? And Speed Invest, Felix at Speed Invest wrote me back like immediately and connected me to the CEO of Speed Invest, who got on the phone with me like within a week and said, I love what you're doing for female founders in the UK. Would you be interested in joining us as a venture partner and doing the same? And for me, it was about investing more capital. It always, I've always had only one KPI, which is how much money can I invest into strong women who are building big scalable companies. And I thought that Speed Invest would give me that platform. Never thought I would be a partner. Really, it wasn't about, for me, it wasn't the destination. It's always been about the journey. And I felt like joint speed invest as a venture partner. And it was supposed to be one day a week and ended up being like, I ended up spending like three, four days a week with them. And then Oliver Hall, who's our CEO, I really joined speed invest for him. I said, why don't you join us as a partner and just keep doing what you love and keep doing whatever you've been doing just inside our platform. And I just thought it'd give me a bigger platform and much more money to deploy and continue doing what I love. And that's how I ended up in VC. I don't think it's the end. I don't know where I'll end up, but definitely, like I said, wasn't a destination for me or a destination of choice. I just love what I do and I can do it at Speed Invest. Very cool. And Ed, you fell into it, but you're still there. Why? I, I fell into it in that it wasn't such an obvious thing to do back then. I had gone into kind of being trained in the financial services industry and was trying to figure out what to do with that training. And there were a lot of more obvious things to do. And I just happened upon venture, I had seen a couple of companies just go from nothing to them, we ended up floating them on the market. And I just thought, what a great journey. An entrepreneur literally just came up with an idea and then made it happen. And the next thing we're floating the company, I just thought this was quite cool and unusual. So I fell, as I say, fell into it. I met the guys and I work with and just, it just hit it off straight away. And then immediately I could just see that the immediacy of you invest back then might have been a million or two million pounds and just what would then happen and you would get it work very closely with the founders who are incredibly energetic and inspiring individuals and then you just go and make stuff happen 
And then it didn't always work, but sometimes it did. It was just incredibly exciting to be part of that. And obviously the most exciting thing would to be actually be a founder. But I don't have, particularly over the pandemic and what's happened these last few years, I've realized that I just, I don't have the resilience or the bravery to really go through the extremes that role entails. The next best thing, I think, is being ringside and partnering and providing the capital. And then actually, it's continued to be the case. So I think we can actually make a difference in, in how we partner if we do it in the right way with the companies we support. Uh, and if, I guess founders that are listening, and it's mostly founders that listen to the podcast, and not that we would advise unless you wanted them to, but if they wanted to reach out to you after the podcast to Speed Invest or to, to Albion, like why would they reach out to Depali or Ed? What are the differences, not necessarily between you individually, but between Albion and Speed Invest? So why, what would you say the differences and maybe even the complementary elements? I think you're much earlier than Ed. You'd like to invest in our companies, I would think. Yeah, exactly. We're quite early, Alex. We have seed and come in much earlier than Albion. And Albion, and we are also focused beyond SaaS, right? So we have other business models. We had marketplaces and we have other things that we invest in that, and different sectors. But I'm sure Ed can explain the Albion thing. And we also invest for us. We also invest in the emerging markets. We have invest. I also look at investments in Africa and Latin. And we have a big investment in India. So we look quite quite broad, but very early stage. Understood. And so Ed, are you Series A and above? Yeah, it's at the product market fit stage. So I think once again, which, you know, can be different in terms of revenue and what you might call a seed or a Series A to be context specific. But the thing that we're, we haven't proven to be quite as good at is figuring out which company is going to get to product market fit and do customers want to buy what the company's selling. But once we get a feel for that, and that can be quite early then we're a great source of capital for the right company. And then where, I guess where we, what we've been to tell, we've got loads of experience. We've been top quartile rated in our peer group for decades and had seen lots to bring to bear. We've got very specific domain focus in software and healthcare and then within software, AI, FinTech, increasingly looking at climate tech and deep tech. But there, anyway, there's lots of things where we go very deep. And then the sort of value add that comes with the, the money is something that we've really doubled down on of late. And this is... I guess really focusing on team build, on go-to-market, the kind of strategic focus, and then we'll help companies with financing afterwards. So those four areas. And the team build is probably the biggest area in particular. We've got the platform team headed up by Jane Redden, who joined us a couple of years ago, have really systematized this. And it's really coming back to the fact that we have seen all these journeys. And there are just, I don't know, is it 30%, 50% of the sort of challenges that a company will go through on its path to category leadership are similar across all the companies and a lot of them are around team building and hiring and company founders might come along and say we need a cmo is on its side and is it cmo or is it a vp marketing and is this and actually we've we got the right go-to-market motion in the first place and then another absolute classic might be going from a sort of founder sales strategy to building up the team but there's so many different things founder issues some people aren't putting at the same speed how do you deal with that so we do a lot of work with that. It's the opposite of like just providing the money and being a supportive ear to answer questions. So that sort of thing, I think all good investors will lean into that. Yeah. But we, we've really trying to build that thing and put a lot of resource behind it and trying to capture the learnings across the sort of decades and breadth of the portfolio. Yeah, we also have a platform team. So beyond capital, exactly like Ed said, try and do a lot of these things at the earlier stage where we often meet founders where there's no co-founder. There's no CTO and you know, putting them together. So really incubating at the very early stages. 
No sense. And, and recently, you guys teamed up Albion and Speed Invest to start Radia Accelerator, right? Which is, uh, I think, a SaaS-focused accelerator for female founders in, in, in SaaS. Can you tell us more? Like, why did you come up with the idea? Like, why did you team up both of you? Who is it for? Yeah, just tell us a little bit about the the origin story there, a bit more about it. Yeah, absolutely. So given the work that I you know, have been doing with female founders for the last eight, nine years, obviously got approached by the Albion team, who I know quite well, big fans of a lot of the ladies in there. And obviously I've met Ed, but they reached out and said, we'd love to do something. And so we brainstormed and came up with this idea. And of course, focused on SaaS, given, given Albion's focus on SaaS, made sense if we were to team up on something. And we would have liked to do something beyond the UK. But again, Albion's focus is on the UK. So we kept it to the UK. And for me, it's very simple, Alex. It's really building the top of the funnel because there are lots of women who are at great corporates and who might be ideating and how can we help them and also build our pipeline from in the early stages. So it's very much about that and also felt in, at the, in the current climate, there might be women who've been laid off or just like there's a lot of talent out there and how do we capture some of that talent and they might be interested in building and how can we help support them through this thinking and brainstorming and learning process. So that was really it. But really, I don't think I have seen another accelerator who really starts with within when women are still employed at corporate. So it's like the first of its kind. So very excited to be a part of it. And when I honestly, I, I think I have a slide tomorrow because it launches tomorrow. And some of the quotes in there, I think one woman wrote that I want to be part of Draria because I want to build the next GigaCon and I'm like super emotional. So when I read that, I was like almost in tears, but yeah, very excited to be a part of it. And it was it's sort of Katia, Lauren and Val at our stage, we've been coming up with lots of ideas as to what we can do to, there are lots of things that different people can do to address the sort of issue that we've seen, which is just there aren't enough companies that we're meeting in the first place that have got women running them. We'd analyzed our stats and actually got marginally better than average number of companies in the portfolio run by women and it's still tiny. And then we go and look and it's like we're just not seeing enough companies in the first place. It's not like half the companies we see are run by women and we're just unconsciously selecting the other ones. The particular gap that this is targeted at is that sort of experienced woman who's got an idea but like how do you go from that to actually getting the company off the ground in the first place because there's loads of tips and tricks that if you speak to the right people can help you get off the ground and this accelerator is really just all about that sort of first stage getting from the idea to actually okay right now i've got i know i've got what i need to know to get off the ground and i've got the relationships in place to provide me that sort of first first few weeks and months of support Amazing. Great initiative, both of you. We're obviously happy to support, support from the side and promotes and you help out as and where we need. We only know too well that in SaaS, there, there is a real kind of lack of diversity, certainly at, at the top. In, in fact, today, I mean, we, we've got this thing called the SaaS.Founder membership, which is like a support organization for SaaS founders. And we got about like 100 founders as part of the group and only five women, only five female founders there. So today I put a WhatsApp in the group and it was just like, hey, look, we know that a lot of you want more diversity, want more women to join the group. My ask is to just reach out, obviously, in the right way to female founders that you know, just to talk to them a little bit about what it is that we're doing and just help share that awareness. But certainly there's more that we need to do within that space. And as I say, just five out of 100 is just not not good enough. Not good enough. And we should definitely follow up on that offline or after this, because the other thing that's been great about this is spend my whole life pitching things to people trying to get them to do stuff so that's come to the stage what's been amazing about the kind of radio accelerators going out to the ecosystem is there's not a single person out and said do you want to get involved or can you help or which everyone said yes 
you've got the whole ecosystem is involved one way or another. And there's only so many kind of slots in the program, but we could have filled up twice as many, three times as many. And actually, I think you look at the people who are on the cohort, first cohort, incredibly inspiring individuals. So we're excited before we started, now having actually started, I think even more excited. Yeah, I, I would say just a few stats. I don't have the slide in front of me, but I was looking at it yesterday. 50% wide, 50% non-wide, I think of the non-white, I think maybe 28 to 30% Asian and women from like Facebook, Google, Amazon. I saw the logos and I was like, this is phenomenal. Yeah. Amazing. Good stuff. We're going to jump now into building and the early days of SaaS companies, right? I know it's the topic that uh, you like to speak about. And let's get some, hopefully some portfolio examples in, in some of this as well. But let's start out with, you know, how at the early days do you go about testing your ideas? Dipali, what are your thoughts around this? I have invested in a few SaaS companies, obviously some consumer SaaS as an angel and at Speed Invest have done last year. And I'm hoping Ed is going to look at them as they come of age. Being very close to the customer base, right? Constantly talking to the customer is extremely important and iterating the product based on what the customer wants, but also making sure that it's a large enough customer that wants that feature or product. And how do you price for that is quite important, right? Because you don't want to build everything and then not be able to price for the right audience so constantly iterating based on being in touch with the customer and, and obviously a lot of SaaS companies and Ed probably knows this a lot better than me is probably start with a different customer base test with a different customer base and ultimately want to build for a larger larger ACVs at least on the B2B side rather unless it's like product-led growth in which case I guess on the PLG side the product has to be phenomenal for it to just sell itself and the customer almost has to love the product again it comes back to the customer so super important to be constantly talking and iterating with the customer is how I look at it without being a SaaS expert. 100%. Ed, what about you? The test, we're often going in much after. later. Yeah, we're going much later. Still, yeah, I mean, that said, like lots of the companies, particularly in the UK, will get one of the first product out and then you're trying to get the next one next one out into the market. But at that stage, you've got quite extensive sort of customer relationships and you can do a kind of the fast fail approach and just get things out there. Definitely don't overthink it. And it doesn't have to be perfect. The product doesn't have to be perfect for it to be out because if you keep waiting for it to be perfect, then, you know, somebody else might come and do it. Exactly. They say you should be embarrassed by the first yeah. product and the first website and you can't wait for perfection. And also, I don't actually have the stats, but I think that most companies, most startups, early stage startups fail because they build something that people don't want and they haven't spoken to the customer and you just have this single tunnel vision that you're creating something amazing, but actually nobody wants it, uh, unfortunately. What about raising angel funding? Obviously, this is something you've been an angel investor, Harley, done you, a lot of that. What are your thoughts in terms of like how to go about raising angel funding and why you'd want to do it? Yeah, obviously, I had this focus on female founders. So very specifically, women used to approach me because and I think it's very important for when you approach an angel, just like you approach a VC is right, really understand what they want to invest in, try and find out and do a research about them, because often you get so many pitch decks and you only have so much time. And if you if it's not something interesting, like it's almost like every angel also has an investment thesis. Of course, angels tend to associate more with emotionally with the problem, right? You have many angels who are not thinking like VCs. They probably are thinking more also about social return, not just financial return and not operating within a fund model, right? So they just have more leeway. But I think understanding what the angel wants to invest in is quite key. 
Also, angels know other angels. So once you find an angel, you need to ask them for other intros because tend to be that they will know other angels. I remember a female founder reached out to me cold, maybe like three years ago on LinkedIn and said, hi, Dipali. It was in Siyash. She's actually building a bioplastics business called Shellworks. And she said, I know you have invested in a similar space in a business called Planera and I'm building bioplastics. I know you have an interest in it. Would you have time for a chat? And I met her two, three times and I loved her, loved what she was building, invested in it. And now she's raised, I think, last year, a very large seed from Local Globe. But what I mean is understanding who you're pitching to is super important and aligning with the interests. We get lots of decks at Speed Invest and we're like, they haven't even read our investment thesis, which is so clearly laid out on the website and we are publishing every day on different sector teams. And I think understanding the angel and having allies, right? I think with female founders always feel it's great to have a male angel as an ally who will open doors to other male angels because they do, they do write big checks. Is it an advantage if you've got an angel round when you're looking at the seed stage to invest or does it matter so much? Yeah, I don't think it makes a difference. We want a good cap table, right? I don't want to have them giving away a lot of equity at a very young stage, whether it's an angel or an accelerator, right? So that's what makes a difference. But angels can be, in my view, they're like the lifeblood of the early stage ecosystem because they can be really value add in the early stages of business because they will open up their Rolodexes. They will bring industry expertise, depending on who the angels are. They will help you fundraise. So I think angels do a lot. And to be honest, from a VC standpoint, people are always like, oh, let's clean up the cap table. There's so many angels. But angels are amazing, especially at times like this, when it's hard for founders and female founders because there's like this bias towards second-time founders in a down market even more. I think angels can play a very key role here in helping founders in the early stages before we come in or we come in really early but would then like to bring in really strong angels when we are doing pre-seed rounds and Ed, i know you, you do invest like a little bit later as you say around sort of go-to-market fit any kind of like thoughts and advice in terms of raising seed funding i think at all sort of stages of the early stages of the sort of funding journey like you always ask yourself like what is the problem you're solving or how intense a problem how big a problem and why is this individual and this company uniquely placed to solve it and then just the further along you go, the more evidence you've got of that being the case. So I just find, and then as investors, you're obviously quite intensely trying to understand, is the founder credible and have they got a good, clear plan and narrative around how they're going to execute on this opportunity? That sort of is what it is. But all of this discussion is really a sort of a framework to enable that that critical sort of element going as well. But it's, it comes back down to founding team, product to market. But the founding team in the market are the two bits that are most important. Great segue there, Ed, in, ter- in terms of the importance of the early team, the founding team, and the culture of the company. So, Dipali, maybe you share some of your thoughts on, on, on that and why it's so important. Yeah, culture is so important, and I don't know if people place enough emphasis on it, to be honest, because when I hear of so many companies that, you know, that the culture isn't that great early stage. And oh, I'm like, I understand why, because there's so much stress and they're trying to build. And if they have external capital, they're trying to make sure they're building fast enough because there's investors chasing down their throat. But culture is so important. Even when I look at Speed Invest and the reason why I joined Speed Invest was because, like you said, leading from the front, our CEO is leading that cultural change and wants to make sure that everybody's happy and thrives of course not every day is a happy day but overall you need to be happy 
because that's when you're productive, right? So product happy people are productive people who can then deliver. So I think culture is super important in any organization. Venton spoke about this last year, I think, in Eileen's business in Fertifa because these questions came up in terms of how you view culture. And then secondly, obviously, diversity is super important because ultimately you want to be able to serve the customer base and your employees need to understand those customers, right? And customers comes in, customer comes in all shapes and sizes and colors. So I think it only is to your advantage if you have a diverse firm with a good culture. And I think it's obviously hard. It's not easy in early stage businesses. It's not easy in big companies because the bigger it gets, the harder it gets. There's definitely a size that suits well for culture, but I think it's hard on both sides. Yeah, I agree. Ed, what are your thoughts? We worry about this massively. It's so important and it's a thing that sort of survives over time and enables a business to scale. And most people are not intentional about it. It just is. And it just often is whatever the sort of the founder or the founding team, how they interact with each other just by osmosis permeates down, but you can be quite intentional about it. But I think I always remember the first time I saw read about the door desks at Amazon, and I just love that story about just showing like there was this focus on cost control and details matter, and if Amazon was going to win at scale against these big incumbent retailers, it had to be just ruthlessly focused on execution, and it just that really just brought to life how important culture was. And it's quite interesting seeing what Revolut's going through at the moment in terms of a, another form of culture, which has been a fantastic for competing against the banks who are incredibly powerful. But now they're going into this sort of highly regulated world and need a banking license in the UK. How does that culture adapt to the different responsibilities that will then come with going up to that next level? It really matters. And it really picks, it sort of comes up at about, it comes up right in the early days, I guess, some of the early values, what sort of behavior do you tolerate internally, but also how do you treat your customers? And if you're a cybersecurity company, are you going to cut corners in terms of what you deliver to your customers? What does that say about how you treat security and all these sort of things that, that sort of give little subliminal signals across the, across the business? But we did have one company that had 70 employees when we invested, much later stage than we normally do. And then the year after we invested, it had 120 employees, but it had 50 resignations. And the team presented brilliantly. The company was in a great sector. The product was superb. But there was this cultural issue that as soon as the business scaled over 70 people, the wheels came off and people hated it and they all just started leaving. And every single person, then there was a good person. So it wasn't like there was a maniac in charge or sorry, you know what I mean? It was like it was a cultural issue that was I know, it was just a blind spot. But like Ed says, you have to be intentional about it. I think that it's very important to be intentional about it. Agree, agree. We're going to move into the quick-ish fire round, conscious of time here, and we'll do one question each. So we'll start with you, Dipali. What one thing has moved the needle the most for you in your career? I would say the allyship of men. I think they're phenomenal men who can change the trajectory trajectory of a woman's career. I think it's very easy for them to be inclusive, be it in meetings, asking them to speak, or whether it's career progression or any sort of or recruitment. I, I think men can really move the needle. And I have personally, I grew up with a father who was an entrepreneur. Of course, he empowered, enabled me in many ways. But over the years, I've had amazing men, including at Speed Invest, the CEO, who has completely supported me in my two and a half years and been a complete role model when it comes to that. Ed, what's the best advice you've ever received? So this is particularly relevant as an investor, but probably in other areas of life as well, but is never to get too happy and elated and potentially cocky when things are going well. And don't get too depressed and full of despair when things are going badly, because 
the ups turn down and the downs turn up. And it just try and keep a level head throughout. Dipali, what is the hardest thing about being a VC? I think it's about saying no to amazing people and, and you don't know whether you're right or wrong for a really long time, right? So I think it's, we, at least, I feel like it's so hard being an entrepreneur and to say no to an, a person who wants to build a business is really hard. Ed, what is the best way to get in front of a VC? Undoubtedly through relationships. And I hate to say, because I appreciate that it reinforces the existing diversity issue within the industry. But if we have which we do thousands of inbound debts. Like you can't apply the right amount of mindshare to each one. So if a really top angel has said, this is the best company in their portfolio, you should spend time on it. You would look through the obvious things and go a bit deeper. And that helps because often the most exciting investments are not obvious. I guess the opposite to party. What's the worst way to get in front of a VC? We look at everything, even stuff that comes to the website, right? Which is why we have a web form, because exactly for that reason, because female and diverse founders don't have networks. So we try and get back to each and every person. But I do think that reaching out without even reading what our investment thesis is doesn't warrant a response back. We still send a response. But in my view, there should be no response if you're reaching out to a fund without even doing any basic due diligence on them. And I should say, I read every single email that comes in. It's just, but some of them are generic. You just, but if someone's really cleverly written something, like you, you do take notice. I had someone who came into the office. She rang the doorbell downstairs and said, is there a partner free? And there was like two, three people in the office that day. And she came up and she said, I'm here from Paris and I want to pitch my business. And I was like, are you here to meet anyone in particular? And she was like, no, any partner. Did you get the meeting? Of course, I spent time with her and I loved it. Of course, I gave her a lot of feedback on the business because I didn't think it was it was investable for us. But I love that hustle. Hopefully, after we publish this, you're not going to get tens of (laughs) founders. Showing up downstairs, Alex, I'm going to kill you. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Uh, We won't meet you. What book should every founder read and why, Ed? It's a bit obvious, but High Output Management by Andy Grove is just the foundation of everything. It just explains management from first principles. It's very good. Dipali, what's your one? I was going to say monetizing innovation. Absolutely love it. Talks all about the customer and how you need to figure out how pricing, etc. That's what I would say. What SaaS companies currently excite you and why, Dipali and then Ed? I'm not a pure SaaS investor, right? I look at SaaS as a business model across lots of different, but if I can obviously talk about our own portfolio companies, the ones that I did last year, Surfboard, Natasha Ratanshi Stein, building for customer service, scheduling. We've had her on the podcast. Yeah, she's amazing. And then obviously Eileen, which is, she's building employee benefits SaaS for family health. And the last one is still building, she's building in compliance tech, but still building in stealth. So can't really mention her, but yeah, these are all SaaS companies and looking at a lot of verticalized SaaS right now, verticalized SaaS with fintech, which I find super interesting. Cool, very cool. Ed? I think it's, it's times when it, like the market is so depressing at the moment, it's quite good to focus on the ones that have really broken out and won. And there aren't, if you think how long it takes, particularly in B2B, to really build a significant business. It does take a long time. Cloud Native only started really in 2009 as a sort of standard, what is it, seven, eight, nine years until you really see companies breaking out. And we do have some early ones here in the UK, like Dark Trace for all of the stuff that's happened since Flow. It's still a fantastic business, incredible early story there. Onfido is doing super well. Sneak's doing super well. And these are great companies that I think should inspire everyone sort of starting out, like just show it is possible here in the UK. 
as Tupani mentioned, we're particularly focused in the UK. I think it's good to feel inspired and know these things are possible. These are great companies still surviving, doing brilliantly despite the market. And if I'm allowed to name one of our portfolios, <laughs> we've got a company called Quantexa, which is just absolutely flying and doing brilliantly. And they're, again, breaking barriers down in their industry that have been sewn up by the big US tech giants. And they're consistently winning head-to-head against some quite awesome beasts. Again, I find very, I'm very inspired when I come away from meetings with that business. Awesome. Good stuff. We're coming to the end of the podcast. I really enjoyed it. It's not often we have two guests, but it brings a nice sort of like dyna- dynamic to it and energy. But where can people find you both, I guess, kind of individually online and also learn more about the accelerator? I'm on the Pali at speedinvest.com, but also my details are on LinkedIn. I don't add anybody I haven't met, but yes, of course, they can message me through LinkedIn. And the accelerator is up and running and starts tomorrow. What's the URL? Radio Accelerator. RadioAccelerator.com. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Very cool. We'll also put, when we publish this in the, in the post, we'll, we'll include the link for this as well. And Ed, where can people find you online? Ed at Albion.vc. And like Dipali, I do read all the messages that come on LinkedIn, but I'll only accept if I actually met someone. Okay. And who is the accelerator for? Like specifically, what's the ICP? What stage? It's women who are currently working in corporates or scale-ups and they want to, they're thinking about building, they have an idea and they want, to, they want to just learn the ropes on how to get there, for the, just how to start. Good stuff. Look, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Your great initiative with, with Radio Accelerator. Really hope that thrives. And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you both in person. Maybe it's ASOC in Dublin later this year. But thank you so much, Carly and Ed. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SAS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDOC conferences around the world. Want exclusive SAS content and actionable insights to grow your SAS? Join our community of over 36,000 SAS founders at sasdoc.com.